Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Well, good morning. My name is Tim Romero. I'm the senior pastor here at Calvary. Glad you're with us. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 21 this morning. Acts 21, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. We find ourselves in the 21st chapter. Moving into the 22nd chapter, we'll be looking at verses 37 through chapter 22, verse 29, with a message entitled, The Defense of a Gospel-Centered Man. The Defense of a Gospel-Centered Man. Stand with me once you're there. We'll read our text together, part of it anyhow. Acts 21, beginning in verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of, uh, help me out, Mike. Cilicia. You know, last night my brain checked out on me and it just did it again. Whoop. The train has left the station. Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we know that you have something important to share with us, each one of us, no matter where we're at, no matter what's going on in our lives, you have something to say to us. We want to humble ourselves before you, God. We want to hear from you. We ask you, Lord, to just speak to us. We pray that you would change and transform us, that your spirit would just remove rough edges from us this morning, God, that we would become more like Jesus. And so we surrender ourselves to you, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So I always like to start out on a super positive note. So I want you guys to think about the last time somebody spread a nasty rumor about you or some sort of an accusation, you know, some false accusation that was brought against you, and it caused you some great pain. Are you there? Are you in your happy place? Okay, I can see by some of your faces that you are there, like about to go medieval, right, on that person. They're not here. But, but let me ask you, how did you respond to that? Like we've all had something said about us, right, that, that wasn't true or that really kind of offended us in some way. What was, what was your response? It, it probably depends on, you know, whether you're a believer or not, first and foremost, shouldn't it? But most of the time, even as believers, like our response, if we're not careful, will be in the flesh. And our response to these things will be, um, you know, the first, the only thing that we'll care about in that moment is ourself. And we'll become incredibly self-focused, self-preserving, and we we will misrepresent not only ourselves, but the Lord. And, uh, you know, people are going to say things. You know, and, and it's our job when, when that happens that we respond in the right way. And, and so everything I'm going to say from this moment on is going to be incredibly, uh, it's going to be absolutely impossible to do in your flesh. The flesh can do nothing but yield the wrong response. But if you're going to do the things that we're going to see in our text this morning, you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's the regenerated life. It's walking in newness of life that 
causes a person to respond in the way that the Apostle Paul does in the same situation where rumors and accusations are being brought against him. And, um, you know, we want to respond. The reason why Paul responds the way he does is because he's a gospel-centered man. In other words, Paul is looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And I promise you, the one that he has today is one that he has been looking for his entire Christian life. He's been waiting for this moment. He's so desired to share the gospel with his uh, countrymen, the Jews. But he had not had opportunity until this, until this moment, really talking from a national level. And what you understand when we come to Acts chapter 22 is really the final rejection of Christ from the nation of Israel. It's, it's the final sort of national rejection where the Apostle Paul brings the gospel by way of his own personal testimony to this nation, and they reject it. And so the Lord, not that he doesn't, not that he doesn't still reach Jews or anything like that, but, uh, you know, the Bible tells us that there's a partial, there's a blindness to the Jews these, these days. Not that they can't come to Christ, they certainly can, but the Lord is working outside of Israel, and obviously we know that from an end time standpoint that Israel is the timepiece that once uh, the rapture happens, you know, we believe in a pre-trib rapture, the, the, the Israelites, their, the Jews, their eyes will be unblinded. By way of the Antichrist, the Lord will say, this is not the Messiah. You missed him. His name was Jesus. But in the meantime, the Lord is still, through the Apostle Paul, bringing the gospel to the nation of Israel. And this will be the final rejection of the nation. And we see that it comes by way of rumor and accusations relating to the Apostle Paul. And he responds as a gospel-centered man. If you were with us last week, you know that Paul has made his way to Jerusalem when he got into town there was a rumor about him hosted in Acts chapter 21, 21 that says he was teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to uh, circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. It wasn't a true, uh, you know, it wasn't true, but perception is reality. And so James and the elders, you recall, they asked Paul to demonstrate his respect of the law by way of taking these four men who were under a Nazarite vow and walk them through the process, not only walk them through the process and go with it through it with them, but also to pay for them. So there was a sacrifice involved in that process, a haircut, and Paul was to pay for all of these things. And that was going to demonstrate to the believers in the church, by the way, who heard the rumor about Paul that he, uh, you know, has been disrespecting the law. Well, that doesn't go too well for him. Uh, you know, what, what ends up happening is as he's in the temple towards the seventh day, uh, you know, which would be the end of the purification time frame, there's some Jews from Asia, probably Ephesus, uh, that stir up a riot in the temple area because they saw Paul with a man named Trophimus who was from Ephesus. So these Jews are probably from Ephesus, and they are angry about what Paul has been doing, going around uh, you know, sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And so they hurl some accusations at Paul in the temple area, Acts 21, 28, where he says that he was teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the law, and this place. Moreover, 
He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. These Jews from Ephesus are saying that Paul has taken a Gentile over the barrier that existed from the court of Gentiles into the holy place. And now there's a problem. Now there's an issue because that is forbidable and, you know, that would be a, a capital punishment. Somebody's going to die for this. And so they, they, they drag Paul out. They beat him up. You know, the Jew, all of the Jews are all stirred up now, and the Romans come to Paul's rescue, as it were. But when the tribune from the Roman soldiers is there, he's trying to make some uh, understanding of what is happening, and uh, he can't, the crowd is not making any sense to him. So it tells us that he's going to take Paul to the barracks, which uh, I told you last week was the Antonio Fortress. It's located in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. As you can see here, if you're directionally challenged, you won't know that's the northwest corner, but it is. I circled it for you so you could know that. So that's the northwest corner. Uh, And uh, that is where the Romans would sit and observe the Temple Mount area. They would just wait for any kind of, uh, you know, uh, riots or any kind of unrest to occur. And then they would come out and they would deal with it. They were called to keep the peace. When they show up, uh, the tribune grabs Paul. He can't make sense of the crowd, so he takes him back to the stairs of the Antonia Fortress. And I told you to remember when Paul, the condition of the apostle Paul when he gets there, he's beaten up, he's battered, he's bruised, he's bloody, he's chained to two soldiers at these stairs. He can't even walk up the stairs. He's been beaten so badly. Now, most of us at that point in time aren't thinking like, Man, I sure hope I get a chance to share the gospel with these guys. I hope that this, this is, seems like a great opportunity for me now to bring the gospel to these people. But understand, a gospel-centered person is concerned about lost people, not his own self. And so Paul is thinking that way. And Paul is thinking, man, there's, there's got to be an opportunity here for me to share with my countrymen. His heart was for these Jews. And so... Uh, you know, Paul will do that. He will make a defense, not for himself, but he will make a defense for the hope that lies within him. He will share his personal testimony uh, with these people. Um, And we'll see here in a second what that looks like. But I've divided our text up into three sections. We find the request to speak by Paul. Then we find the rejection of the defense and the revelation of Paul's citizenship. But we began with the request to speak in verse 37 where we saw as Paul was brought, uh, about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up the revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. The tribune here being spoken of, his name is Claudius Lysias. Uh, He is responsible for a cohort of soldiers, which is about 600 or so soldiers. When Lysias rolls up into the temple area, he thinks that he's caught Jerusalem's most wanted. He thinks that the Apostle Paul is uh, this this Egyptian insurrectionist who has, uh, you know, responsible for raising up a revolt against Rome. And um, we know that that Luke records for us that this man had at least 4,000 
uh, men who were assassins. You know what an assassin is? Back in this day, it was literally a, a, an ancient terrorist. And what they would do is they would walk through the, the city streets of Jerusalem with their daggers hidden in their robes, and they would just walk into the crowds and stab people. That doesn't just happen in Spain in this day and culture, but it, hap- it happened in Jerusalem back in that culture. They were, they were Jewish nationals who hated Rome. And they wanted to, they would just walk around, you know, just stabbing people. Um, so they weren't from L.A., I don't think. They might have been, I'm not sure. But uh, Josephus tells us that, uh, he's the first century historian, he tells us that this man, this Egyptian man, was prophesying that the walls of Jerusalem were, were to fall and then Rome would be driven out. Well, anytime you speak against Rome, that's not a good thing. Felix, who's the governor of Judea at the time, he says... Man, we're going to go make easy work of this guy. He takes us, some soldiers over there. He kills a bunch of the followers. He imprisons some of them. But the Egyptian man escapes. So Lysias now comes to the temple. He's thinking, this is the Egyptian insurrectionist guy. I've caught him. Man, this is great. Until the apostle Paul says very politely in a language that an uneducated man would not know. In Greek, he says, may I say something to you. And that might not capture your attention, but it certainly captured this uh, tribune, Lysias' attention. And he thought, you can speak Greek? He thought he was just an uneducated criminal who was, he, he'd finally caught, but he was not. And Paul said, uh, yeah, I can speak Greek. And, and he tells him that he goes on to reveal to him that he was an educated man. He was, first and foremost, a Jew. He was from Tarsus of Cilicia, which uh, uh, he said a citizen of no obscure city, meaning uh, the, uh, Tarsus at the time was a cultural epicenter uh, with a university that was rivaling that of Athens and Alexandria. If you know those cities, you know that those were the philosophical educational systems of that day. And where Paul was from was from a place that was a thinking town. People were educated where he was from and such. And so um, Paul, Paul tells him that he is, he is from there, but he's a Jew. He has a right to be in the temple. And this probably puts Lysias off kilter a little bit because he doesn't, now he doesn't know who he has. He thought he did know who he had. He thought he was this Egyptian, but now he understands this is not the Egyptian. This man's an educated man who speaks Greek. Who exactly is this man? And then Paul says, I beg you. The idea, man, he's, he's literally imploring the man. He's begging the guy, will you permit me to speak to the crowd? And he's thinking, man, what do I know? I thought you were an Egyptian. Sure, go ahead. He tells him verse 40. And when he got permission... When he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Paul, standing now on the steps of the Antonio Fortress, one soldier on each side, bloodied, bruised, tattered up, motions with his hand for the crowd to be silent. I, I, would, be, I would think that they would be silent because they're thinking, like, what in the world is this guy going to say at this point? I mean, look at him. And he just motions, and it tells us that there was a great hush. 
this was an opportunity that Paul had been praying for. This is something that, that he had probably thought about his entire life. Like, isn't there a moment in your life where you're just like, man, if I just had an opportunity to just stand before Justin Bieber and tell him the gospel, not, not Justin Bieber, but you know what I mean, somebody like that, you know what I mean? If I could just tell them the gospel, man, that would be incredible. Paul loved his countrymen so much that he longed to tell them about Jesus. And if there was anybody who could understand where they are and how, you know, how to come to Christ, it was Paul. He was exactly where they were at that moment. He has a, a story that fits within the narrative of what's happening in the storyline here. He understands where they're at. And he has a burden for them to come to Christ. And so it's interesting here. He speaks to them in a Hebrew dialect, which is Aramaic. Aramaic at the time was the common language of, of the Hebrews. They, it transitioned in 6 BC onward where that became the common language. Now understand, uh, the tribune and the Roman soldiers don't understand what Paul's saying because he's speaking in a specific dialect to the Hebrews. And so from this point on, they don't know what's saying. What's going to happen is they'll see the reaction of the crowd later, though. And so Paul begins by addressing the crowd, brothers and fathers. He's associating himself with the nation of Israel. I am a Jew. I belong to you. You're my people. Uh, and, and it tells us here, he asks them, hear the defense that I now make before you. Paul wants to make a defense. That word, you can circle it in the outline or in the margin of your Bible. You can write the word apologia in the Greek. It means apology or apologetics. It's, it's making a defense. But the defense that Paul makes is not the kind of defense that you might think. You might think like, oh, an apologist. Well, they, they stand up and they debate other people's belief systems and they stand for the faith of Christianity. That's a type of apologetics, but... Peter, when he uses this word in the New Testament, he uses it in the context of the hope that lies within you. It's not necessarily him defending all of the Christian belief systems. Jesus was born of a virgin, you know, and, uh, you know, all of the, the, the foundational beliefs of, our, of Christianity. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the 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 defense of why Paul is living his life the way that he is. And that's exactly the context that Peter uses. Let me read it for you. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Peter said, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the uh, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks uh, you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Listen, yet do it in gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for uh, doing good than if, you, if, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The context that Peter's writing is relating to what? Suffering and slander. What is Paul experiencing in Jerusalem? Suffering and slander. 
the idea of him making a defense isn't necessarily the stand for the, the principle, the Christian foundation. What he's saying is make a defense for the hope that lies within you. In your suffering. Do you know your loudest voice is in your darkest moments, folks? It's when you're suffering greatly. That's when people are paying attention. And what we want to do is respond correctly to our suffering in a way that God can use it for people to go, how are you doing it? And then you can give them a reason for the hope that lies within you. You can say it's only by the grace of God that I'm doing what I'm doing. It's, it's God's work in my life. He's the one doing these things. And you can give them. That's your defense. Your defense is the gospel and your changed life. And that's what Paul wants to deliver to these people. He is not standing up for himself in this situation. He is a gospel-centered man. That means his focus is bringing the gospel to lost people. And if we understand our mission, we also would be gospel-centered people. And when we, when we find ourselves in difficult times of suffering and slander, that we would remember 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and that we too would be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us because of the way that we handle our circumstances. Everybody is an apologist in that sense, aren't we? We're called to live in that manner. Paul is ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within him, and I promise you, he's excited about this moment. He's longed for this moment. And what he will do now is he will use his personal testimony to share with these Jews who were angry with him about Christ, and he will demonstrate what Christ has done in his life. Paul has an incredible conversion story. Like it rivals no one's conversion story in the New Testament or perhaps that's ever lived. I mean, may, maybe Charles Manson's conversion story or somebody like that. Or, or who was it? The son of Sam, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, that's pretty, pretty incredible too. Christ can reach anybody at any time if they're willing to, to believe. And it does not matter what's gone on in your life. His grace is sufficient no matter who you might be. The Apostle Paul is a demonstration of that. Do you know his story is told three times in the book of Acts and then two additional times in the rest of the New Testament. There's not another person in the New Testament outside of Christ's life that is explained more than the Apostle Paul's life. Why? Because it, it's an impactful story. It's God working in the life of somebody who is the least likely to come to Christ. If when In the church, in the New Testament church in, uh, back in these days, they were probably taking votes on who's the least likely to come to Christ and Saul was on the top of the list. No way that guy's coming to Jesus. Well, God just happened to be able to reach him, and now we can have hope for those people who are the least likely in our lives to come to Christ because if God can save Paul, he can save anybody. And that is the hope. Why is it repeated over and over and over again? I think it's for that reason. I was just listening to a, a sermon the other day. Uh, on, on, I just like to listen to random people on YouTube, you know, really mess myself up, you know. Uh, so... I was listening to a sermon on this passage, and this guy said, you know, well, this is going to conclude our, our study of the book of Acts here today because, you know, the rest of it is just Paul telling his story again. And I'm thinking, like, it's not worth telling again? Like, his testimony is not worth telling? Let me tell you something. Your story is worth telling over and over and over and over and over again. Your story has power. 
I don't care what it is. It does not matter if you lived a fairly decent life and that you grew up in the church. And, you know, listen, your, your conversion story is powerful. You went from death to life. You went from darkness to light. That's a powerful testimony. No matter who you are, you have a story, and it's powerful, and you should tell it over and over and over again. That's the point. That is the point. Yeah, uh, Paul had a, a sort of a, an interesting way that he was converted, and we'll talk about why why it is that Paul had the sort of encounter with Christ that he did and, um, you know, and how that relates to the way that we came to Christ even. Now, it's it, the framework that Paul uses, and I think the framework for all of us to use relating to our testimony is this simple. You can divide your testimony up into three sections. You can first start with who you were before Christ. Then you can talk about how you came to Christ and then you can say what God is doing in your life now. What is the result of coming to Christ? And that's sort of the way that he frameworks, the, you know, sharing his testimony here. He begins with who he was in verses 3 through 5. And it says, and he said, I am a Jew born of Tarshish of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as uh, the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For that, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, skip down to verse 19 with me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the, the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul identified with this crowd by telling them, hey, I'm a Jew, just like you. I was born in Tarshish of Cilicia. And in fact, he goes, but I wasn't raised there. I was brought up in this city. Where is he at? He's in Jerusalem. He's telling them that he was raised up in Jerusalem, not just by anybody, but by the foremost rabbi of that day, Gamaliel. We were introduced to Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. Remember when Peter and John were before the council, the religious leaders and such, and they were trying to figure out, what are we going to do with these guys? They won't shut up about Jesus. And we've got to silence them because they're leading people away from Judaism, you know, and they thought that uh, they didn't, they totally reject Jesus as the Messiah. But, but the, the effective ministry of Peter and John was such that they said, man, we got to stop these guys. And remember, it was Gamaliel who chimed into the conversation. And he said, listen, guys, here's what I say. If this is not of God, it will just die out. They're not going to be able to sustain this. So, uh, you know, but if it is of God, man, be careful that you be found fighting against God. Gamaliel just gave them wise counsel that just said, let's just see what happens with this thing. Well, guess what? It's, it's multiplying crazily at this point. Why? Because it's God. How can you stop God? You can't stop God even though they desired to do that. But it was Gamaliel's counsel that they would just let it be. And here, Paul, bringing up the name Gamaliel in this moment, 
the crowd probably was astonished by what they had heard. Whoa, Gamaliel? This guy was brought up by Gamaliel. And, and he goes on to that, the, the association being under the tutelage of Gamaliel would mean that he was a strict adherer to the law. He goes on to say, I was zealous for God. Like there wasn't anyone more zealous for God than I was. And in fact, Paul would say in his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. There was nobody more Hebrew than me. Like I was living my life according to the law. What is he doing? He's identifying with the crowd, but he is not lying about his past. In other words, we don't embellish our past to meet uh, our present circumstance and who we're talking to. But don't you often find that when you're sharing your testimony with people that's, that your past connects to their present? Like there's a connection there? That's not by accident. God is in the midst of orchestrating what we call divine appointments, right? Where he leads you to the right person because you have the right words and you can connect with that person. Jesus, he made himself you know, connectable with people. Like, he, he wasn't just this, you know, I just, I came from heaven, I can't relate to you guys or at all. Like, I'm from another planet, you know, like another place. I can't, no, no, he was relatable. And one of the most powerful things that God uses in our lives is our relatabilityness in our past to be able to connect with people where they are so that they can understand, if God can reach him, he can reach me. If God can forgive them, he can forgive me. And so Paul's doing this with his testimony and who he was. Don't embellish your, your, who you were. And also don't camp there and, and give a, you know, like don't build a gigantic front porch and then just give snippets of the rest of it. Because the rest of it's the most important. Right? A lot of times we spend so much time on the past that we forget about we don't spend much time on the conversion and then what that means for us now. Those are the most important parts. But you got to tell the story. And your story connects with people. And God will lead you to people just like he did the Apostle Paul. He's the right guy in this moment to tell this story because nobody can connect like him. He was so zealous for God that he persecuted the way, which was Christianity, just another uh, another way of saying that. And in fact, we just sang the song, Jesus was the way, the truth and the life. Christianity was called the way back in this day. And Paul said, I persecuted them severely. Like I put people to death. I imprisoned, you know, and I beat men and women, both. Because I was zealous for God. I didn't just stop there. I actually... I actually was responsible for killing the very first Christian in Jerusalem, he says, in verses 19 and 20. I killed Stephen. It was at my command. The Jews there questioning Stephen, you saw the, the, we, that account in Acts chapter 7. Stephen being hammered by the religious leaders and him telling them how they rejected God, how they missed the Messiah, how Jesus is the one. He said, you guys are stiff-necked and you're unwilling to hear God when he's speaking to you. And some of us are in the same boat. He's speaking, but we're unwilling to hear him. But, but at the feet of Paul, the garments were laid of the people who would stone Stephen and Paul gave the command, do it. 
and he's telling the crowd, I understand where you're at. I've been there. I was like you. I persecuted the way, just like you're persecuting me. I was that guy. I did that as well. Paul not only stopped in Jerusalem, but he went to the religious leaders and asked for permission to go outside of Jerusalem to persecute the church. That's how zealous he was for the law and for Judaism. Paul is telling the guys, I can understand where you're at. That's who I was. Now let me tell you what happened to me when I left Jerusalem with those letters and I had an encounter with Christ, how I came to know the Lord Jesus, verse 6. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me, And I said, what shall I do, Lord? That is the right question. And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and came into Damascus. So Paul recounting his steps now as he leaves Jerusalem, just zealous for God, desiring to persecute the church. He's going to snuff out Christianity completely. Anybody who gets in his way, if they're Christians, they're in big trouble. And it's on that road to Damascus that he has a life-transforming moment that he will never forget. And he tells his story over and over and over again. He starts out by telling us the time of day. It was noon. And you might be thinking, why is that important? It's to tell us that it was light out. It was already light out. It's like noonday, like, like the sun. He tells us in Acts 26, uh, when he's before Agrippa, he said the sun was shining that day. Like it was probably the brightest day uh, of, of the year as he was on his way to Damascus, which is to suggest that the light then that shone from heaven to earth was so brilliant, so magnificent, that it outdid any light that we could ever understand. It was so, such a powerful light. It was Jesus in all of his glory. That's the light that Paul saw. Remember when Jesus came to earth, it says he emptied himself of his glory in Philippians chapter 2. But here, ascended to heaven, Jesus in all his glory, pops, rips open the sky, and he's just, boom, and Paul gets hit by the light, and it tells us he was knocked to the ground. Not just him, but all that were with him. They all were knocked to the ground by the light. It was a magnificent light because it was Jesus and all of his glory. Jesus is, according to, first, according to John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Uh, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is light, and he reveals himself in this manner to the apostle Paul. Not only did Paul hear, not only did he see Jesus in all of his glory in this brilliant light, but then he heard his voice, and he called him by name, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? Now, this probably shocked him. He's thinking like, what? Persecuting me? I'm not persecuting a person. I'm persecuting a movement. But Jesus takes his movement personally. Do you know he's the head of the church? He's the head of the body. So that when you're persecuting the body, you're persecuting the head. And he takes that personally. That is to say that God cares about his kids and that he is zealous for his kids. But understand, not everybody's his child. You have the right, the Bible says, to become the child of God. You're not born that way. You're born again that way. You have to be born again in order to be a child of God. You're not born that way. People say, yeah, I don't know. I was just, I was just born a Christian. No, you weren't. You can't be born a Christian. No one's going to say, you know, uh, you know, what is it? The same. God, God doesn't have grandkids. You know, you're not saved because somebody else was saved. Like, you'd have to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you become a child of God. If you're not a child of God today, you're a creation of God, and he loves you dearly, but he's inviting you into the family. And he wants you to be part of the family. But you have to be born again. You have to be willing to come. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't know who he's talking to. He just knows this is something greater than himself at this point. And he says, who are you, Lord? He's scared, I think. And he hears the voice of Jesus say, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. At this point, Paul, he knew he had done messed up big time. Like, he is like, he's like, whoa, this is Jesus, the one whom I'm persecuting. It must have, it must have convicted his heart big time in that moment. Jesus, though, took the time to reach into Paul's life in this moment to draw him to himself. Why? Why this way? What, you know, all of us are praying for our family members, like those who don't believe in Christ, that God would just rip open the sky and just shine down just like this moment to have that Damascus Road experience. How come my family members don't experience this, but Paul gets this? I'm telling you that God reaches people where they are in a manner that will require them to walk by faith and will not overstep their will. What do I mean? Now, Paul, you understand, thought he was walking with, with God. He, he, he was doing the work of God. Paul was under the old covenant, right? And he was doing his best under the old covenant. Like, if there was anybody that had a heart sunk into what he was doing, it was Paul. He was trying to do his best to live the way that he knew to live according to what the law said. It wasn't that he didn't have faith to believe. He just was under the, the old covenant and the new covenant had just come and God was going to reach him. You see, my point is that Paul had faith to believe. He just hadn't had the right moment. And here was the right moment for the apostle Paul. Well, what about my unsaved family members? What, why don't they get that? Well, perhaps they're like, here's what I know. God reaches people in that same manner as he reaches Paul. It might not be, you know, by ripping open the sky in, in a bright light, but man, he does miraculous things in people's lives to reveal himself. But he will not force you to believe, and he could. He very well could. He could reveal himself in such a way that you could not deny it. We were, uh, yesterday, we were just talking with some people about uh, Noah's Ark and all of that, and, you know, you ever wonder, um, you know, people... Uh, the, the discovery of Noah's Ark and all that. What, what would happen if they, they found Noah's Ark, which 
some people say they have and all of that. I'm not here to debate that. But, but he, my point is, is why wouldn't God reveal that if it's been found and, and allow it to be seen and all this stuff? Perhaps because then it would, you know, kind of force the hand of people. God doesn't need, God's given us all the evidence he, he needs to give us to believe in him. It tells us in Romans chapter 1, look around, creation is evidence. But people reject it. It's not necessarily about that. Paul was primed for the gospel to come. He just hadn't had the right encounter. And your, your unsafe family members, they might be like the religious leaders who told Jesus after he did miraculous things and signs and wonders, can you show us a sign from heaven now? Can you, I mean, you're of Bisabel, you know, like you're working in operation of the devil. Like they had an unbelieving heart. There's a difference. God reveals himself differently to people based on their heart condition, I think. I think that's kind of the point. He works in people's lives differently. But here's what I know. No one's going to stand before the Lord one day and go, God, you just didn't give me an opportunity to know Christ. It's your fault. Wrong. It's not. He's revealing himself over. And I promise he'll go, well, let me just show you. And he just, you know, pulls out his God-sized remote. And he's like, mm -hmm. and he just shows you over and 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 over again how he's tried to reach you and you've rejected him. There, I can tell you, just looking back in my life, and I, don't, I can't see probably all of them that God has revealed, but I can see so many times God inserted himself in my life pre-Christ, pre before I got saved. How many times he was trying to reach me, and I missed him. You got to wonder what happened to the, the guys that were there. Paul tells us that they, they saw the light. They didn't hear the voice. But they had that encounter. Why didn't they hear the voice? Because that wasn't the way God was revealing himself to them. But they did see the light, which begs the question, did they get saved? You wonder. When we get to heaven, are we going to be like, hey, man, what's your name? Hey, I'm Ezekiel. And I'm like, oh, awesome, man. Well, What's your story? You know, tell me. He's like, I was one of those guys with Paul on the road to Damascus. And I'm like, what? You know, I, you got to wonder. Probably some of these guys got saved. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But they had an encounter with Christ just like Paul. And everybody will have that opportunity over and over and over again in your life. God will reveal himself. Jesus inserts himself in our life. He cares about us. Paul was ready to receive the gospel, the, the, the presentation just didn't, hadn't come to him in the way that he would understand it. And God is faithful to do that. And he's doing that with the Jews even right now. He's helping them through the Apostle Paul understand it's God reaching down through his life story to help to try and reach some of them. Well, Paul does, he obediently follows the voice of Jesus who tells him to go into Damascus and he will, he will, it will, the rest of his, you know, appointment will be revealed to him. And so we pick it up in verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for, for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Ananias, who was God's servant in Damascus. Remember in Acts chapter 9, the Lord tells Ananias, hey, 
there's a guy on Straight Street. His name is, his name is Saul. I want you to go talk to him. And Ananias is like, um, <laughs> Lord, uh, you know Saul persecutes the church, right? I'm not sure that I really want to go talk to him. And he does it anyway. And the Lord uses Ananias to further reveal Jesus to Paul. And it tells us here that Paul's, Paul was blinded by the light. He was there waiting for three days. And God told Paul, there's a man that will come and he'll restore your sight. God is working in a way that he can relate to him. And he does that in your life. And so Ananias shows up at the door and he heals his sight in that moment. Now Paul's, th this is Paul just going, wow. This really, all this is, is just unbelievably real to me at this point. God working in such a way. And Ananias tells him, Paul, you've been appointed by God. God is calling you to tell your story to everyone, everywhere. Go tell your story. Go tell people what's done to you. Remember when the de demoniac man got healed by Jesus? Uh, and, and, you know, he cast out the demons from him and the, and the people from the town, the Gadareans came out and they were just like, whoa, this guy was, this guy was a, a nutcase. You know, we could change, couldn't even hold him, but now he is clothed and sitting in his right mind. And remember what he wanted to come with Jesus, what Jesus told him? No, no, go back into the town and tell everybody what I did. You know, God's telling Paul to do the same thing. Go and tell everyone every what I've done. And he's telling you the same thing. Go and tell everyone everywhere what I've done in your life. Your story matters. Paul came to Christ. And, and his conversion, remember here, is it happens as a, role, a result of him calling on the name of the Lord, just like you and I. He didn't just get saved because he saw a light or heard a voice or received his sight. None of that brought salvation into his life. Neither did baptism bring ba salvation to his life. He's, it says, rise and be baptized as a sign of belief and wash away your sins calling on his name. It doesn't mean he was, his sins were washed away by baptism. No, his sins were washed away by calling on his name. It's the only way your sins are washed away. Paul is now a new man. He has had an encounter with Christ. He has been born again to a living hope. And now his story will continue. This is now who he, he is now. He goes on and tells us the rest of his story in verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Skip to verse 21. And he said to me, go and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So apparently after Paul's conversion in Damascus, he comes back to Jerusalem. He's in the temple praying and, and probably trying to figure out what, am I, what do I do now? And he has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus tells him, hurry up and get out of here. Get up and get out now because these people will not receive your testimony. It wasn't time. What's interesting about this is Paul had a heart for his countrymen, and when he came back to Jerusalem, he's probably thinking, dude, God's going to save this entire place, like right now. I'm just going to pop out on the temple, and I'm just going to start preaching the gospel. People are going to fall down and get saved and all this stuff, and God says, no. Huh? 
yeah, don't do it. It's not time. And that's a word for us at, you know, there, there is a time that we share the gospel and there's a time we don't. You know, there is a time that God has prepared for the heart to receive it and that he's been at, in, at work in the hearts of people, drawing them to himself. Remember, people don't get saved because you have such a great capacity to explain the gospel. That's not why people get saved. People get saved because God has done drawing them and then he's just, he's just allowed you to come and be his tangible presence in their, in their, and before them. He's already done the work. He's already got them into a place of where they're primed for the gospel. And honestly, uh, you know, you, you read Greg Laurie's story. He said when he, he, he at times when he first became an evangelist, he would just stand before people and say, uh, you know, are you a sinner? Would you like to receive Christ? Say these words with me. You know, I mean, like it wasn't anything he was doing. Man, there's power in the reality of that. It has nothing to do with your capacity to explain God to people. Do you know that? Nothing to do with that. God draws people. And we get to be in the midst of that, the work that God is doing. And honestly, most of the time, it's not, it's not even about our words. Sometimes I walk away and I go, I got no idea how that person got saved. I'm confused myself there. But anyway, they got saved. That's because they were ready. But God tells Paul, they aren't ready. It's time to leave. Maybe there's people in your life that, you know, you, you have a compassion for, a desire to have them come to But the Lord's telling you, don't do it. Don't share it. They're not, they're not ready for that. That suggests that we need to be sensitive to the Spirit when we're, when we're sharing our faith. Yeah, we're to go out. We have the Great Commission. Go out and share the gospel with people and all this stuff. But listen, at the end of the day, there's a time to do it and a time not to do it. And there are people that are ready and there are people not ready. And the last thing I want to do is push people away from God. You know, you do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Just know it's the Holy Spirit. That's all. You know, we're called to walk in this life according to the Spirit of God. So just know that it's the Spirit. You know, and, when, and, and here's what I know is that there are plenty of opportunities. Like, it's not short. We're not short of opportunities to share the gospel. I promise you when you get to heaven, you're going to, uh, I don't know how that would work, but would God show us all of the opportunities that we missed? I'm sure there are a gazillion of them. Because you know what? Oftentimes, we're not ready. We're not ready to share. Paul so desired to see this nation come to Christ, but they... They weren't ready, and so the Lord says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, Paul. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Uh, this is when the record screech happens. <laughs> Did he just say Gentiles? Uh, look at the response to that word. Upon this word, verse 22, they listened to him. Uh, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow to, of the earth. Away of, with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. Wow. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So Paul's standing there on the, on the you know, the, the stairs of the, of the Antonio Fortress there had a great, connection with these people they were 
they were with him all the way up to the word Gentile. That's when things got nuts. They heard the word Gentile. It wasn't because he said the word Gentile. It was the context in which he said it. What he said was that the Lord had sent me to the Gentiles, that I was to go and share with them the same message I'm sharing with you. Wait a second. Are you saying Gentiles and Jews are on the same level? That's exactly how they took it, and they flipped their lids because they did not see it that way. They did not see it that way. And in fact, Paul would become a light to the Gentile nations. That was how he lived the rest of his life for 20 years from the time he got saved up until about this time, roughly 20 years. He had been a light to the Gentiles. Yeah, he went to the synagogues first and he tried to reach the Jews and all of that, but most of the time he was rejected. He did, some got saved and some followed him and some even were on the trip with him there in Jerusalem. But reality is, the Jews did not see Gentiles on the same level. In fact, if you wanted to get saved, they would understand this. If you wanted to walk with God, you would need to become a proselyte. You'd have to go through a conversion process and become Jew- Jewish in order to walk with the Lord. Now, there were God-fearers who would, were allowed in the, the synagogue and such, but they were not converts yet, converts. They had not come all the way over. They hadn't gone through the, the ceremonial process. It's interesting that the Jews would be upset with Paul being a light to the Gentiles when that was their job in the first place. They were called to be a light to all the Gentile nations, and they did not do that. They concealed the light rather than revealing the light. And some of us are doing that. We're concealing the light rather than revealing the light by holding back, well, yeah, my, my, my story is personal. It, it probably is. But man, couldn't God use it? And I'm not saying you go everywhere and tell everyone everything. What I'm saying is that you have certain things in your life that God will bring those kind of people that have been through where you're at. In their, they're in that present mo- moment. And you can say, man, I've been there and here's how God met me. But you gotta be willing to be intimate like that. You gotta be willing to use your story. You know, and there are some tough things that people have gone through. But guess what? There's some tough things people are going through. And you can meet them there. That's why we can, we can give comfort to those because we've been comforted by God. And the Bible tells us that, that we can be a comfort to those who are mourning because of the comfort that we receive from him. Man, when he said Gentiles... The dust went up in the air. They ran their clothes. Robes were flying off. I have no idea how that worked. And here's the thing is, the Romans, all of a sudden, they see this craziness happen. They don't know what was said. They have no idea. So they're like, let's bring that guy inside, and we're going to flog him. You know what a flogging was? It was brutal. They would take this whip, a cat of nine tails, a flagellum. It was a, a hand, it had a handle with straps coming off of it. Uh, nine cat of nine tails, you know, they, they varied on how many straps came off of them. But the leather straps would then be embedded with bones and metal and, and rocks, all sharp objects. And they would take that flagellum and they would use it to, to uh, it was sort of a, an ancient way to get information from people. 
you know, we would waterboard people, stuff like that. They used a flagellum. It was far more effective, by the way. But what they would do is they would, they would tie these people up to a post. And we'll see Paul is stretched out, it says in verse 25. And sometimes they would stand and they would be stretched out like this. Sometimes they would be on their knees stretched out. But the point is to expose the entire back. And then they would take that flagellum and they would slap it on their back and they would bring it at an angle like this so that they could just really rip the flesh from it. When Jesus was scourged or flogged, in this manner, it was said that his, probably some of his organs were exposed. The flesh was shredded from these things. Most people didn't survive a flogging. And many people, if they did survive it, they were paralyzed afterwards. Shred into the spinal cord and things. That's how deep that went in. And so, Paul is getting ready for a proper flogging. They're going to find out why the crowd reacted to him and such. And this is where we get to our final point where Paul gives the revelation of his citizenship, verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, it is, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was, uh, also was afraid for he had realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. In preparation for flogging, they violated the law. Even in the fact that they chained Paul up was a violation of his rights as a citizen of Rome. They had not gone through due process to condemn Paul worthy of even being bound. And so they had already stepped over the line by doing that. The fact that they were, if they would have flogged him, that would have been really bad. They would have died for that. That's the, set, that, that's the response that we see here is, you know, why they respond to that is because it was so serious. And Paul just nonchalantly, as they're tying him up, you know, they're tying him up. And he, he's just like, hey, let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, if, uh, if, uh, is, it, is it lawful to flog a, a Roman citizen who's uncondemned? And, you know, I'm asking for a friend. I don't know. Just what, what do you think? You think he is that law? And, dude, the Roman citizen, when he heard it, his eyes just got this big. And he's like, D -d -d Roman citizen? What do you mean? He goes to the tribune. He says, he, he thinks he knows, it seems like to me. He goes to him and goes, what are you about to do, man? This guy's a Roman citizen. Do you understand how much trouble we're in already? And the guy's, his eyes get this big. And he's like, D -d -d -d. And he goes back to Paul and he says, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yeah, I am. And he goes, well, well, I mean, I, had to, I bought my Roman citizenship for a large sum, which his name, by the way, Claudius Lysias, probably Claudius, he probably purchased in some way, shape, or form his citizenship from Claudius Caesar, which uh, was illegal, really, it was illegal to do that. They, they could bribe people. They probably bribe people for citizenship. But isn't it interesting that he'd be given sort of the, you know, he'd been given his citizenship by way of purchase, and then he'd be sent far away from Rome. 
And yeah, he had a position as a high military officer and such, but he's like, okay, now get out of here. Here's your citizenship. Thanks for the money. See you later. You go over there. Um, so he's there, and Paul says, yeah, I, I didn't buy mine. I, I was born that way. And they knew they were in serious trouble at that point. And in fact, they backed up. And, and, and I I'm, I'm promise you, from this moment on, they're like, hey, Mr. Paul, can I get you anything? Would you like some more foods? You know, and they're run, running around trying to solve this problem now because they're in big trouble. And Paul is, it's interesting that he waits till that moment, till almost the last moment when he's being stretched out. Like literally they're tying him up to reveal the reality that he was a Roman citizen. Why'd he wait? I suggest to you because he longed to see his countrymen come to Christ, that he wanted an opportunity. He could have pulled that card way long before and none of this would have even gone on. But he was waiting on God. And some of us, man, we just want to pull the card right away and just get out of our situation. I'll just, God card. Here's the God card. I want out of the situation. God card. And God's saying, no. But here's the thing. I can do something in this moment if you'll just go through the process with me. Don't look for the, the quick escape. Say, Lord, what are you trying to do in this moment? What do you want to do with me, Lord? Walk by the Spirit. Ask him. Lord, how do you want to use my suffering and slandering? to use it in order to, for me to give it a defense for the hope that lies within me. How do you want to use the things that I'm going through, Lord? He wants to use your story. He wants to use you in some way, shape, or form. Listen, don't despise the circumstances that you're going through. Just sit before the Lord and ask him what he's doing. And sometimes it's just it's just faith building and it's just he's just strengthening you in these kinds of things but sometimes he's trying to maneuver you into a place where he can reveal something to somebody that you're going to be faced with hey listen our job is simple tell people about Jesus tell everyone everywhere about what he's done everyone everywhere about what he's done whatever you're going through think of it like this like God's positioning me to be his witness in this moment. Lord, help me to use it. And you know, again, it's impossible for us to think that way if we're not walking in the Spirit. My immediate thought anytime something happens in my life is, what about me? How do I get out of this? And that's probably your immediate thought. But our really, what our prayer should be is, Lord, help me. To, to respond in the spirit and say, God, what do you want to do in this situation? How do you want to use this? Do it. Have your way. I'm yours. I want to be a witness for you. You've appointed me for such a time as this, Lord. Help me to do my job. You can't do it on your own. Your story matters. And God puts people in your life that can relate to you. Stuff that you've gone through. You don't have to tell every, everybody everything. But you do have to have somewhat of a level of sensitivity to hear what's being said and to be able to process that and then connect the dots with your life and how God can use your life to show them what he can do in their life. And I promise you, you'll find that those are the kind of people that God brings in your path, people that you can identify with, that are walking the same road you've walked. But if you're unwilling to tell your story, it's going to be very difficult because what happens is people 
when we share the gospel with them, they think we can't identify with them. And like we're just giving them just this wishful thinking. And when you tell them, no, I've been through it. And here's what God did in my life. It becomes more than wishful thinking. It becomes tangible and God will use it. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.